I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show, and it's good to have you listening in. Maybe you've had this experience recently. Someone asks how old you are and exclaims, but you don't look 60. You feel pleased because in a youth-obsessed culture like ours, looking young and healthy is prized. But the age you look may have little or a lot to do with your biological age. That's the age that puts you at risk for disease and death, the age that all of the slings and arrows of living have added up to. Scientists have become much more knowledgeable about assessing biological age. With advances in computer technology, they can measure hundreds of biological metrics to arrive at your biological age, and that is valuable knowledge. Our guest, Dr. Morgan Levine, writes... The biological age is meant to give you a glimpse into a possible future, one that you have the power to alter. She adds, your biological age on any given day is not your destiny. Dr. Morgan Levine is a scientist and researcher into the aging process. She's an adjunct professor of pathology at Yale. She is also a principal investigator at Altos Labs, a biotech company in the aging field. And her new book is titled True Age, cutting-edge research to help turn back the clock. Dr. Levine, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. All right. I wondered how catalyzing you think the knowledge of biological age is, because if it involves a shift in habits or lifestyle, you are probably more aware than I am about how reluctant or, you know, or just... um, I guess apathetic people are about doing that. What do you say? Yeah, I think it's in some ways twofold. So on one hand, I think a lot of people don't realize the kind of influence that they actually have on their aging process. We see, you know, aging is universal, but it doesn't mean the rate at which we age or the way at which we age has to be universal. And I actually think, and the data suggests we have a lot of power to kind of influence uh, those two factors. And then the other thing is, aside from looking in the mirror every day or reflecting on any number of diseases that you've developed, it's actually hard to assess how each of us is aging ourselves and to actually take um, well-informed kind of steps to intervene to some degree in that process. So I think being able to measure biological age and actually use that as a tool gives people more power over the way they age and ultimately their health. You know, that makes sense because let's say you get a number. Let's say, as I used in the introduction, the example of 60, and you get a number from a test that tells you that your biological age is 71. Well, that's a shocker because all of a sudden your mortality looms a lot closer than you think. But, you know, we are inundated with numbers and information that tells us that our health isn't what it should be. I mean, look at your blood pressure. You know, everybody pretty much gets a measurement of that when they go into the doctor. And I don't know that that is, as as I said, as catalyzing as it should be in changing the way we live to change those numbers. What say you on that? Yeah, I think the other difference between measuring something like biological age versus using more of these traditional measures um, that we've used to assess health is that even prior to disease, it can still differentiate people. So it puts people on a spectrum 
as opposed to things like blood pressure, where we generally say, are you past some magical cutoff or not? So if you're not past that, you're good. And there's really no difference between people who are in that, quote, healthy range, according to these clinical measures. And then even people on the other side who, you know, are diagnosed with hypertension, they aren't necessarily given information on the degree to which they are abnormal compared to what you would want or expect. Um, and then I think the other thing is, in at least in the aging field, we really um, like to talk about the modifiability of this. So yes, everyone's going to age, but we actually think that rate is modifiable and people have a lot of control over it. What have you found in how, in, in kind of the mean, are most people pretty close to their chronological age? Or do you find that there are a significant number of people who would see that biological number and be shocked about how different it is from their chronological age? Yeah, so most of these estimates end up being that kind of normal bell-shaped curve um, that we like to talk about in statistics, where your mean, so the, what you expect on average to find, is someone is equal to their chronological age. Um, and then, of course, you have people who fall on either side of that, so people who are what we would consider accelerated agers and then others that are decelerated agers. And then very few people kind of out at the tails that have really extreme kind of discrepancies between their biological and chronological age. So how meaningful is it that I would do this test and I would find out that I'm five years uh, biologically older than what my chronological age is? I mean, is that something where you think, as you talk about modifiability, is that something that you think is startling enough to empower me to make changes? If, and, and especially given, I think that I heard you say that many people are, you know, kind of within this median range. Yeah, and I think, you know, beyond just getting a number for a single test, what I tell people the most thing is to try and slow the rate at which you're aging. So it's not, you know, my test today says I'm this number, but it's if I tested every year, so for every one year of chronological time, how fast is my biological age increasing? So what you would want is that it would be less than a year. So you're gaining less biological age than you are chronological age. Um, and I think there are definitely certain types of people that will take lifestyle intervention steps to try and maintain that slower rate. And then, you know, of course, there are people who might not find that particularly important. But I do think getting a very abnormal number might be startling and uh, to actually reevaluate um, what someone is doing in their everyday life. You know, I'm interested in what changed in the field to allow such uh, increased precision of measurement of biolo biological aging and, and what that means to assessing what takes place at the cellular level as we age. What changed? Um, so again, I think of this as kind of a twofold change, and it really was the combination of technology development. So now uh, we have the technology to measure even millions of variables within cells or populations of cells. Wow. Um, yeah, and then that was really coupled with the boom in kind of data science and AI and informatics that actually gave us the computing power 
to actually make sense of all that data. Um, so it was really these two things coming together that has only been happening for the last decade, maybe two decades. Um, so we're constantly evolving, getting better, better estimates of things like aging, which are very complex processes and really do require this kind of multidimensional types of data. Okay, so just so I understand this, the ability to measure these changes has has greatly advanced in the last, what would you say, 10 years? Or is it much more recent than that? Uh, probably 10 years, but really the acceleration of advancement probably in the last five years. Okay. And then I think I heard you saying, and then when we get that information, we now have better systems, better computers, better ways to understand just what that information is saying. Would you say more about that? Yeah. So a lot of the ways that we actually estimate things like biological age is using something called epigenetic data. So what this is, is we take a blood or saliva sample from someone, and we're measuring millions of little chemical um, modifications in the genome simultaneously from the same sample. And, you know, the, the ability to do that was a, was a technological uh, breakthrough, but then also the, it takes a lot of computing power to be able to analyze and make sense of all that data and actually come up with a meaningful biological age score from all that information. So this is where advancements in computing and the types of algorithms uh, that one can use really has accelerated the field. You have a graph in the book that describes a the lab test and the system that it's measuring, and it includes tests for like C-reactive protein albumin, lymphocyte percentage. You know, I guess I guess I was surprised as I looked at these at these different measurements that you were uh, gathering, harvesting so much information out of these kinds of tests. Would you just take a couple of those tests and say, yeah, you know, when we look at your C-reactive protein, this is the kind of information that it tells us about how healthy you are, how you're aging, how your, you know, physical system is working. I just, I guess I want some insight on just what you're looking for. Yeah, so these were actually, these were selected agnostically. So we don't go in and say, oh, we're going to make a list of, you know, seven or nine variables that we're going to combine. Mm -hmm. We actually select these based on the computer algorithm. So the computer looks at, let's say, 60 clinical measures and says the, this combination of nine variables are the best predictors. And when you look back at which ones were selected, we find that they actually do map onto lots of diff- different kind of systemic processes. So CRP uh, captures things like inflammation, te- uh, tends to capture even chronic inflammation. Um, then we have things that are capturing kind of kidney and liver function, metabolic health, and, and so each measure individually is actually not that informative, mm-hmm. but when you combine them into more of a sy- systemic approach, that's where kind of the, the power comes from. So the whole is really much more important than, than the different pieces. You get a much more informed picture when you put these little data pieces together. 
than yes, any one of them telling you, wow, this is something you really need to worry about. Exactly. So I want to ask you about inflammation. I'm glad you brought it up. You write about it in the book. I mean, I, I feel like um, uh, health information on inflammation has become pretty trendy. We're reading more about it. Give me kind of the lay of the land on what scientists now understand about the concerns about inflammation, and then what as individuals we need to be aware of. Yeah, so inflammation has actually been a major focus in aging research for quite some time, and people... uh, there's a, there's a lot of evidence that it plays a major role in aging. And actually, they've coined the term inflam aging um, <laughs> to actually describe this kind of uh, driver of, of aging. Um, and so what, what we're talking about in terms of inflammation inherently is not a bad thing. It's a, it's a very important uh, physiological process in our body. But it becomes problematic when it is chronic and or systemic. So it's not that you're having these massive inflammatory responses that you would get, you know, if you had a viral infection or an injury, but it's that you have this constant low-grade inflammatory response that is not turned off, and this can accumulate and build over time. And there's a lot of uh, studies going to why this happens. Um, some theories are that you get these certain types of cells that accumulate called senescent cells that have very pro-inflammatory um, kind of expression profiles and that they're just sitting there expressing all of these inflammatory factors. Um, but it, it could also just be an inappropriate kind of response of our body over time. So when you are carrying inflammation, is the body rushing certain resources, I guess, to that area of inflammation? And is there evidence that, you know, that is something that is depleting your body of, I guess, resources that it needs? I know this is super simplistic. I I want to understand how we should think of, as you described, like a low-grade but consistent inflammation and what we ought to understand about it. Yeah, so I don't know if there's good evidence that you know, inflammatory cells or cells that have this inflammatory profile necessarily sequestering important Mm -hmm. um, factors. But I think the thing is that inflammation is meant to be damaging. So it's meant to fight, you know, whatever it is that is the reason it's being expressed, but it's also non-specific. So it also can damage your own cells. So you might have, in the case when we talk about these senescent cells, they're expressing a lot of these inflammatory cytokines and actually can damage uh, the neighborhood of cells that they're in and actually cause other cells to become damaged over time. Um, so the issue is that you, when this isn't turning off, you just have this kind of pro-damage environment that can then kind of accumulate and accelerate over time. So uh, that was a good description of kind of the neighborhood. So it is not just the central area of inflammation that's of concern. It's the ripple out through the the atmosphere, basically, that this inflammation is living in. Again, super simplistic, but is that essentially it? 
Yeah, and it's and the other thing with the aging is that it's the inflammation is tends to not be kind of just in a single location. Ah, so that's what okay. you would expect, you know, with an injury or some other inflammatory response, but it's what we call systemic. So you have kind of a low grade of inflammation across lots of different cell systems. Um, and that this is probably what is driving. And to understand this again, you said as as understanding advanced about what inflammation does and means in the body, it really opened the door to better understanding about how we age. Is that is that right? Yeah, exactly. I think we're starting to understand a little bit more how inflammation plays a role in driving aging, whether there are actually points of intervention where you can intervene and, and kind of tamper down inflammation in certain cells and whether that would actually slow uh, age-related accumulation of deficits. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with Dr. Morgan Levine. And as you can hear, we're talking about science and aging. And what has changed in the last, I think Dr. Levine said, yes, the last 10 years, but it has really accelerated in the last five or six years. We're talking about some of the physical systems and metrics that scientists use to assess the way we age. And we're going to dig into that a bit more. She is an adjunct professor of pathology at Yale and a principal investigator at Altos Labs. And we're discussing her new book, True Age, Cutting-Edge Research to Help Turn Back the Clock. You know, you have a very good description for the layperson, uh, the non-scientist, of what happens to cells as we age. And I, I wanted you to explain what the body does when it senses that cells have been damaged. What does the How does the body react? Yeah, so there tends to be kind of on average, three options that, you know, when a cell acquires some, what we would, we might consider damage or basically unwanted uh, phenotype, that the cell can undergo what we call apoptosis, which is uh, cellular death. So basically, it can die, it can be taken out of the population. Um, The other kind of fail safe that our body has actually developed is something called cellular senescence. So What this is, is the cell does not die, and actually these cells are almost immune to death, um, but they no longer divide. So they're not going to kind of rapidly, what we would call proliferate. Um, So they're almost in this frozen state. Um, And then the third thing is if, you know, your body doesn't do anything, some of these cells actually have the potential to go on and turn into cancers, and then this is where you would get this kind of rapid proliferation and growth. Which one of those is called zombie cells? Is that the frozen cells that just kind of hang around and don't do anything? Yeah, so a lot of people have referred to senescent cells as zombie cells because they're they're not dead, but they're not in in some ways fully alive. (laughs) They're undead. (laughs) They're undead. Right. Okay, so what is the problem, or is there one, of having, besides what you described about some of those cells can turn into cancer, I want to ask you about that. Is there a problem with cells that are, I guess, no longer useful, but still being present? And how much do researchers like yourself really understand why the body does this? Yeah, so um, I'll start with the second part first. So I think, you know, there is an evolutionary reason for why 
we want these cells. Um, why we want cells in which damage cannot be repaired to turn into senescence. And, and really, this comes down to probably an anti-cancer mechanism. So it's preventing cells with damage from becoming cancerous. Um, and then the problem with this is that with aging, you tend to accumulate more of these. And these cells have kind of a nasty phenotype in that they express a lot of inflammatory factors. So these are, so the accumulation of these types of cells are one reason that we think inflammation might increase with aging. As these cells are basically sitting there expressing a lot of inflammatory uh, factors, and even those factors might go on to damage the cells in their neighborhood. You noted that Alzheimer's research is really interested in the role of these senescent cells. What might the connection be? Yeah, so people recently have been observing that certain cell types in the brain contribute this inflammatory environment that actually might be contributing to Alzheimer's disease. We still don't understand how exactly these mechanisms are occurring. One hypothesis is that some of these, uh, so in Alzheimer's, one of the features are these, what are called amyloid plaques. And uh, there's some evidence that these might actually induce cells to undergo senescence. It still hasn't been fully proven out, but there's interesting data in animal models that if you kind of remove senescent cells, that this might improve uh, learning and memory. Okay, so that was my other question. As, as you alluded to the research that's ongoing about, you know, some of these senescent cells and maybe their role in cancers or potentially Alzheimer's, how, how possible is it that a day will come when you can measure the presence of something so tiny as a senescent cell and then be able to intervene with some kind of treatment that either removes them or renders them completely, you know, inoperable. What, what would be the possibility of that? And do you think that's where some of this is headed? Yeah, there's a big push um, actually to address both of those questions. Um, so people are trying to develop measures to quantify the senescence burden in the body. It's fairly difficult because actually I didn't mention this, but senescent cells are fairly diverse and heterogeneous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there isn't necessarily one type of senescent cell. So it's understanding what are the common features, how do you measure them, um, in an individual or tissue from an individual? And then does this really cover the ones that are deleterious or problematic? And then on the second thing, there's a huge push right now to develop things called synolytic therapies. So these are drugs that specifically target senescent cells for removal. And there's been a lot of success in animal models showing that this can improve disease outcomes and potentially slow aging, and a number of clinical trials in which people are actually starting to look at this um, as treatments for, uh, in this case, fairly severe diseases, but potentially um, in the future as preventable measures. So the body does not slough off these senescent cells itself. That is why perhaps the intervention of some kind of drug that 
would get rid of them would be such a breakthrough. Is that is all that right? Yeah. So the one one of the features of senescent cells, aside from the fact that they don't divide, is that they're what we call anti-apoptotic, which mm-hmm. just means they will not undergo cell death. So kind of similar to cancers, they are kind of immune to dying. Um, and so what some researchers have figured out is what that pathway is that gives them that ability. And they're targeting that pathway and turning it off. Then the cells will undergo this apoptosis and die and get removed from the body. I thought this was really enlightening. While we're talking about cells, you write, when we think about aging, it does not merely come down to the robustness of each individual cell, but rather how well the system of cells and molecules synchronously work together and how that impacts the organism as a whole. So how how well can scientists measure the robustness of a cell community? And do, does aging also kind of debilitate those cell communities as a whole? Yeah, so we, we definitely think it does. I think we don't have a complete understanding of how it does. Um, people, again, with these breakthroughs in technology have now been able to actually generate really in-depth data on individual cells. So you'd get thousands of cells within a population. And from there, start to understand how not just the individual cells are aging, but kind of this emergent feature, which is the population and how kind of the patterns of of aging or other kind of changes in the population might map on to health. This is a little bit difficult, but there's also now people looking at this where you can actually look at the spatial representation of the cells, so which ones are next to each other, wow. and, and say something about, you know, how their kind of molecular features. So I think this is something that maybe in the next five to 10 years will really start to accelerate. Okay, so, so give me an example of how that might be applied in understanding, let's say, how well someone's, I don't know, digestive system is working and whether that is contributing to, you know, a, a, an accelerated biological age. Yeah, so I think we're not there yet in terms of the science. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we can do kind of the two ends. So we can look at all the cells pooled together um, and then make some interpretation about how that's impacting the tissue function or someone's biological age. And then you have people looking at individual cells and starting to get an idea of what's happening there. But it's kind of that middle bridge we need to make. So how are the individual cells and how they're organized in a tissue, how is that then mapping on to, you know, these kind of larger physiological changes that we see? This is kind of simple. How much of this research do you feel like is two steps forward, one step back? I I mean, it seems like I hear you saying it's accelerating. And some of the things you're talking about is really, I don't know, sounds pretty miraculous. And yet I know that for all advances, there's so much trial and error. How does it look from your point today? Yeah, the way I would see the the one step forward, two steps back is that 
with every question you answer, you get five more questions (laughs) that you didn't think about in the beginning. Um, And in some ways, that's exciting. It doesn't necessarily feel like we're backtracking, but you realize how much we don't know and how I think we always think things are going to be simpler from the onset. And then there's always so much. I mean, biology is immensely complex and I think it's miraculous the amount that we've actually even been able to interpret. You're listening to a conversation with Dr. Morgan Levine. She's a scientist and researcher into the aging process. And we're talking about some of the science she writes about in her new book called True Age, Cutting-Edge Research to Help Turn Back the Clock. I want to talk about the influence of genes, but but I think this is a good place to ask if you would share the different experiences that your grandparents had as they aged to 90 and 89. A long, uh, I'm sure, rich life for both of them. But the point you make in the book is that they aged pretty differently when they got into their later years. Could you describe how? Yeah, and this this kind of brings up an important point. So often when we talk about biological age, we talk about the rate of aging, Um, But it's really important to also discuss how people also age in different ways. Mm -hmm. So some people might have faster or slower rates of aging in certain kind of domains or or organs in their body. And I give my grandparents' actual good example of this. So they lived to almost exactly the same age but had very different experiences. So my, my grandmother spent maybe... 10 years with fairly debilitating physical and eventually cognitive uh, deficits. So she uh, had to use a wheelchair or a walker to get around for quite some time. And then at the end was also having a lot of uh, kind of cognitive issues. Uh, On the other hand, my grandfather was basically able to continue playing tennis up until let's say, six months before his passing. Incredible, yeah. Yeah. Um, Although he had some kind of metabolic aging, which, you know, pre-diabetes, whereas if you looked at my grandmother's lab panel, she would have looked great. Um, We were all surprised that she actually outlived him by a year. Um, And this is really, I think of them as a perfect example for more kind of the stereotypical differences we see in males and females as they age. So on average, again, it's not the case for everyone, but women tend to develop more debilitating conditions with aging and have more frailty and what we call sarcopenia, which is this muscle wasting, and are more prone to cognitive decline. However, women still live significantly longer on average uh, than men. So it's kind of this paradox that people in the aging field like to talk about. Yeah, I want to get I want to get into some of that. But first, I noted that you said if you'd looked at your grandmother's lab panel, it would have looked great, meaning that could you have assessed, let's say when she was 79, that this was kind of coming for her, that there were some real areas of concern and her biological aging was going to it sounds like, outpace her chronological aging. Yeah, so she so she had lab panels on some domains, but actually she was someone who had quite severe inflammation, hmm. um, which probably contributed to 
a lot of the physical and cognitive decline she experienced. Um, but if you were to just look at things like indicators of diabetes or cholesterol, she looked really good for her age. So this is where, you know, looking at the individual markers might not be that informative. Granted, I never calculated a biological age on her, so I wouldn't be able to tell you if it was actually accelerated. But um, I think this is why it's important to actually understand the different domains. When you say she had significant inflammation, I mean, you you just knew that from the diseases that she was dealing with, or I, you could see arthritis, or how, how did you know that? Yeah, so she she did suffer from rheumatoid arthritis Ah, for quite some time. And then, yeah, based on the diseases she was suffering from, and then um, I think her lab tests picked up inflammation, but in terms of things like metabolic health. I think her doctor described, based on her metabolic health, she looked like a 20-something-year-old girl in a red convertible or something. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. So, So this brings us to kind of the philosophical questions about... I think most people think just if you ask them a question like how old would you like to live to, you know, people will probably choose somewhere, I don't know, in their late 80s, maybe 90. They've had a relative who, you know, lived well to that age. And then when you start to introduce the idea of, well, what if you were partially disabled from some chronic disease? I I, I think it. many of us would say the living well part might be more important than the living longest point. But I'm curious about how you see it. Yeah, I mean, I see it the exact same way. I think most people want to be able to maintain the functions and be able to do all the things that they love doing in life that actually make life worth living. And once you start to lose those, I think people think of those years maybe less desirable as the ones prior. Granted, your perspective might change actually once you get to that point. Right. But yeah, I think most of us want to just see ourselves in the future as healthy and vibrant and contributing. And I think the misconception in aging is that we're not focused on that. We're just focused on life extension. But really, the main focus is health health extension. But here's the thing. I mean, you can see studies on this. You can see anecdotal kind of evidence that even as people age and things fall away that they're able to do, their level of happiness seems to still be intact and even increase. I've seen this with relatives of my own. So it's almost like when you're looking, when you're anticipating this kind of future, you don't have a very clear perception of what it's going to mean not to be that vibrant, you know, high energy person you were at 50. I'm sure you I'm sure you've run across, you know, research that indicates this. Yeah, I think it's it's very hard for humans to actually project what the future is going to look like or actually place ourselves in kind right. of a future scenario. Um, and I think almost all of us, even in our lives, if we think about how old we are now and then when in our 20s, what our perception of that age would have looked like, <laughs> it, it probably doesn't match up. So yeah, I think it's hard to really, especially younger people ask them like, what they would want in the future. Yeah. 
And like, how old do you want to be? Okay, so so this is yeah. a good opportunity for me to share a an op-ed that I love to bring up with people like you. It was by Dr. Zeke Emanuel. He wrote it in 2014. It was in The Atlantic, and it was titled, Why I Hope I Die at 75. And here's a paragraph from it. Living too long is also a loss. It renders many of us, if not disabled, then faltering and declining, a state that may not be worse than death, but is nonetheless deprived. It robs us of our creativity and ability to contribute to work, society, the world. It transforms how people experience us, relate to us, and most important, remember us. We are no longer remembered as vibrant and engaged, but as feeble, ineffectual, even pathetic. Is he missing anything in your view there, Dr. Levine? Yeah, I actually very much remember this op-ed. And <laughs> yeah. I actually wrote I wrote a response you to did. it. You did? All of, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, my, I was a PhD student at the time, and they put out this um, magazine, and that I have a few-page response to this. And for me, I think the problem is, is that he's looking at a stigmatized version of aging. And as, you know, he, it's almost making the assumption that everyone of a given age is this, quote, feeble and not able to contribute and really, the goal of aging research is to allow you to maintain your functioning ability, your ability to contribute, and enable you to do all the things you would want to do for much longer. And you can, you know, people can make the argument that they don't think we should be doing that much longer, and there should be kind of a, a limit. <laughs> but I, I don't think you can take the point of view that after a certain age, everyone has reached this point of basically it's not worth living their life because they're so quote decrepit according to kind of what he's saying. Yeah ineffectual and pathetic. I mean your grandfather is you know is the the complete exception as are many many people but to this description right he was living a very full active, vibrant life. Oh, he might not have been as creative as he was at 35, but there were other things that what's that made up for that, I would think. Exactly. And people can contribute in different ways throughout their lifespan. They don't have one role in the world. And once they become slightly less able to fill that role, then they're useless. So we actually acquire vast amount of knowledge that we can pass on um, with aging. And that's just as um, important as, let's say, being able to go out and run a sub five minute mile or something like Mm, that. Yeah, probably more important. Uh, When it comes to the ethics of aging research, what's the what is the discussion? What's it sound like? When scientists talk about how far we ought to push the limits of aging? I think there's a lot of discussion, not necessarily among scientists or in the field about kind of extreme longevity, but definitely in the public sector or when people write about uh, aging research. And I think for most scientists working in the field, there's agreement that we just are working to extend what we call health span. So this is a time people are able to maintain their health. And then ultimately, that will probably spill over to increases in lifespan. But we're not looking to just 
get to some magic number in terms of longevity. Uh, so we actually don't have tons of discussions on what that number should be because to us, that's not where the goalposts are. The goalpost, just to, just to you know, speak this, I mean, be specific about this, the goalposts are healthier later age. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, okay. that's, that's what most of us are working towards. So I love talking about the power of exercise, and I was so happy to see in your book that there is <laughs> there's a quite a few uh, pages on this. Your book really reinforces why exercise and daily consistent exercise makes such a difference. Can you explain for the doubters out there why 30 minutes of exercise a day lowers the risk of cancer and stroke and heart disease? But it may not be enough to keep the extra pounds off. Yeah, exercise is to me like the miracle intervention. It, people have shown it reverses disease. It prevents disease. And we know, too, that it slows the rate at which people age. Um, of course, you know, to actually, like you mentioned, take a lot of pounds off, it, it's kind of a calories in, cal- calories out. So, yes, exercise helps, but it's a combination of diet and exercise. But there is some kind of magical uh, reaction our body does have to (laughs) exercise. It just makes it more robust, uh, which also then makes it less susceptible to deterioration or these small insults uh, that we experience over time. And I, I don't People are very interested in finding drugs to target aging, and they always ask me what supplements I'm on. And I would say, (laughs) if you don't exercise, I don't know why you're so focused on that, (laughs) because it's free and it works better than anything else we have. What kind of a reaction do do you get to that? Yeah, I, I think people usually want the quick fix, and I get it. Psychologically, it makes sense, but... Yeah. I, I thought this experiment that you described that Dr. Saul, is it Villeda from yeah, UCSF? Saul yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Th- this was so fascinating because he was testing the blood of mice that had exercised. Tell us what he learned. Yeah, I, I love this uh, experiment that Saul, that Saul and his group did. So basically, this built off this um, weird experiment called parabiosis where you have mice that are actually sewn together and they share circulatory systems. And people have shown that aid, that older mice make young mice worse when sewn together and vice versa. Um, the young ones make the old ones better. But what he did is he said, well, let's just take the blood from a mouse that is exercised and put it in a non-exercising mouse. And what they found that it, this actually improved learning and memory in these mice and there, there's a lot of interest in also looking at are there specific factors that people can identify that might be contributing to that. So they did some of that work. Um, but that part is kind of ongoing in understanding exactly how blood from an exercise mouse might be beneficial. <laughs> I mean, you know, not to get weird or sci-fi here, but you could see a day where people who, can you believe it, don't want to exercise get injected with the blood of people who have and you sell your highly exercised blood I don't know am I going off into a <laughs> <laughs> no is. I think this is this is the thing that people always talk about and same thing for the idea that the young blood is going to quote rejuvenate um, <laughs> someone who's older but I think 
the idea is that if you can actually identify the factors, then we could synthesize these in a lab and you don't have to do you know, blood collections on people, which I don't think will ever be a norm don't or you? accepted. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it might be a little too extreme for most people. Okay. What if I wanted to, hey, for X amount of money, I'll go work out for two hours and then I will sell you my <laughs> rejuvenated, <laughs> freshly exercised blood. I don't know, Dr. Levine. I could see a market for that. <laughs> yeah. I, I would not be surprised if there was a company already <laughs> already working on this, but yeah. That's right. Dr. Morgan Levine is with us. We're talking about her new book. It's titled True Age cutting-edge research to help turn back the clock. And we're talking about some of that cutting-edge research and how it is, um, or cutting-edge research and how it's accelerating. Um, I thought that I've been reading a lot about the advancing science on how fat cells um, behave, and you've written about this. It sounds like, contrary to what scientists once thought, that the number of fat cells that we have remain pretty stable and that the difference is that they either swell or shrink when we gain or lose weight. So tell me why that's important to understand. Yeah, so there is substantial data showing that your number of fat cells is fairly set after you reach kind of full maturation. And this is probably due mostly to genetics. Um, but potentially some environmental or, or early life factors. But it's not the number of fat cells doesn't seem to have a negative or any negative connotation for health, even though we, we associate fat often with poor health. Um, the problem is actually when you get uh, kind of in, enlarged fat cells. So they're storing a lot of this extra uh, lipid, and that creates, again, this very pro-inflammatory kind of phenotype in these cells, which then can cause this kind of chronic systemic inflammation, also contribute to things uh, like uh, type 2 diabetes. And so this seems to be more of the problem. So so that, this is interesting. So you, let's, you said, and of course, there's a genetic component to this, but you said, you may be somebody, what, who was overweight, had a lot of fat cells in your 30s, and let's say then you lost weight, chances are, and you lost a significant amount of weight, chances are you still possess those fat cells from the 30s when you were overweight. It is what happens to those individual cells that is really going to make a difference in, in your weight and the way you age. Yes? Yeah, so exactly. So when someone loses a large amount of weight or even a small amount of weight, it's, again, because you're having less of these kind of fat storage within these what we call adipocytes. Um, and that's actually what's contributing to the loss of weight. It's not that you're losing fat cells and they're getting cleared from your body. Um, and actually, fat, it's actually good to have a decent number of fat cells because you have then more quote, storage capacity. Um, and each individual cell, you can distribute kind of the storage across them, and you don't fill up each individual cell quite as much. So I, I read your chapters on calorie restriction and time-restricted eating with a, with a lot of interest. I, I mess around with this. Sometimes I like to, you know, expand the hours that I haven't eaten. 
but there was a brand new, I guess, overview kind of study uh, about time-restricted eating and fasting, which seemed to say that it really does nothing in the long term. I read about it in the Times. I'm sure you've seen it. What do you make of it? Yeah, for that study, I think their main outcome was weight loss. Um, And I would actually say they didn't have fairly extreme differences in terms of the regimens the two groups were on. I don't recall exactly. Meaning? um, A lot of people. uh, So I think they, the difference in terms of the timing was only a few hours difference between the groups. Um, And I think one of the groups, the other group was caloric restriction. Um, And I think the caloric restriction showed a bigger effect and the fasting less so. I don't remember exactly all of the details, but there's been a number of scientists who have written kind of rebuttals to why Mm. they think this may not be the end of uh, excitement about uh, time-restricted feeding or fasting. Um, But I do think we need to be open to the possibility that you know, it might not be as powerful as we hope it is. Um, And also open to the possibility that the timing might actually, of when you're doing the fasting might matter more. So I have my colleague, Walter Longo, talks a lot about how most people are perhaps doing it wrong. And we fast early in the day and eat at night. And actually, uh, his hypothesis is we should be doing the opposite. So we should be eating most of our calories early and then fasting later and in line with kind of circadian. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, just logically, I guess that makes a lot of sense. I mean, do you think that what the research is going to show in the next, I don't know, decade or so, is that calorie restriction of some kind is going to turn out to be pretty important to the way we age biologically? Yeah, so I I think to some degree will be important. The question is, to what degree and how much benefit are you getting for restricting more? So some, a lot of people in the field think calorie restriction just works because you're preventing people from doing kind of the opposite, which is overconsumption, which we know is deleterious. Um, And it might be that, you know, if you eat kind of a stable amount of calories, not necessarily a deficit, maybe a tiny deficit, that's almost as good if not in some cases, perhaps better than a more extreme deficit. And so I think Mm. the question is, yeah, how much benefit is going from, you know, no deficit, but kind of equilibrium to a larger deficit? I have one last question for you, and it's a a larger question. What is the most urgent, I guess, conundrum, mystery about aging that remains unsolved and that you would – hope will be solved in the in the span of your career um yeah i think for me the biggest mystery is what drives aging and this is actually a debate that goes on a lot in the field how much of aging is just an accumulation of damage versus something that's programmed and when i say programmed i don't mean the body has some kind of countdown clock that's that's ticking your days left, but that it's just a result of programs that were important for our development and growth that kind of go haywire uh, with age. Um, and I think understanding more of the root causes of why we age will give us a little bit more power in being able to intervene. 
Dr. Morgan Levine is a scientist and researcher into the aging process, and her new book is titled True Age, Cutting-Edge Research to Help Turn Back the Clock. Thank you. Love the conversation. Thank you. It was fascinating.